Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Lynn. I would like to thank you for tuning in today for our new episode. But before we begin, I would like to let you know that next week, there will be no new full-length episode because of the 4th of July holiday. But still tune in, as there may be a mini-episode ready and waiting for you on Thursday. Again, thank you for listening. Now, on with the show. As an amateur photographer, Lloyd brought his camera everywhere. From time to time, he'll see a shot-worthy opportunity, and he's glad to have his equipment ready to aim and click. By trade, Lloyd was a medic. He's had his fill of life-saving and urgent care situations, from trying to save a severed hand to taking care of people with a sudden bout of food poisoning. In all his years as a medic, he has met countless people and helped many of them as well. In the 1980s, Lloyd was hired as a medic in an oil rig. Now, this was entirely new to him since he mostly worked on the mainland, but working in a rig or oil platform was good and honest work. He leaves the shore and gets transported to the floating structure and spends 21 straight days at sea. Lloyd was on duty from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., ready to help anyone in need. On top of his medic duties, he also operated the radio control room which allowed crew members to get in touch with their families and loved ones on land. Both a medic and radio operator, Lloyd has witnessed many of life's highs and lows experienced by the crew members while away on the job. During downtimes, Lloyd continued his passion for photography. He would focus on marine life or the ever-changing sky. Since the oil rig was run privately, cameras were technically not allowed, But in Lloyd's case, he was given a bit of leeway by the company to take photos of and inside the rig. Mostly, he would take random photos of the crew at work or while at rest. Lloyd was also the welcoming committee for the rig, giving Greenhorns a tour of the place or getting them some much-needed supplies. Lloyd also loaned out books from his personal collection. He knew everyone on that rig, and they knew him. After one of his 21-day shifts on the rig, he was transported back to shore for a quick leave. As much as he loved his work on the rig, it was great to be home, even for a short while. But, four days later, Lloyd will receive some devastating news. He would soon find out that the photos he took of the crew and the rig will one day be the only ones left for their loved ones to cherish. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about events from recent or earlier history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I'm your host, Lynn. The oil and gas industry has had its moments of greatness and failure. The efficiency of its technology and their global impact is remarkable, and the unfortunate effects in nature are the opposite. On the other hand, 
These experiences have propelled the industry to new and higher standards of technology, safety, and policies. In this episode of Untimely, we'll visit a state-of-the-art oil rig that suffered severe and catastrophic damages which shocked the industry and continue to be mourned by a small community in Canada. Odico, or the Ocean Drilling and Exploration Company, was a drilling company founded in 1953 by Alden Laborde and John Hayward. Hayward holds the patent on a submersible drilling barge, which will become the main bread and butter of Odico. After receiving a large sum of money from various investors, including Charles Murphy of Murphy Oil, the company built its first oil rig in the shipyard at New Orleans, Louisiana. With the demand for oil drilling and exploration moving at its peak, the first rig built was contracted to Shell, one of the largest oil companies in the world. Many other rigs and types of rigs emerged after this, including the semi-submersible oil drilling unit. Let's talk about what exactly is a semi-submersible unit. Well, in a few words, it is basically a floating platform. But, in more than a few words, it is a marine vessel designed to keep stability and have mobility on the surface of any deep water like seas or oceans. The platform is kept afloat by pontoons or hulls that are fully submerged in water but evens out the weight distribution if or when the water becomes a bit too rough. The entire unit as a whole can be moved to different locations, and when it has chosen an area to stay in, four anchors or more are moored to the sea or ocean floor. So in 1976, Mitsubishi Heavy Industry of Japan was contracted to build a semi-submersible mobile drilling unit by Oriko. The specific type of unit ordered was a MODU, or Mobile Offshore Drilling Unit, in which in addition to the basic semi-submersible parts, the rig has a control room, an oil drill, offices, and living quarters which included a kitchen, common areas, and individual sleeping areas. There is a helipad to transport workers on and off the rig and rafts ready to deploy at any time. This constructed unit was named the Ocean Ranger, and here are its specifications. It is 96 feet or 121 meters long, 262 feet or 80 meters wide, and 337 feet or 103 meters high. When it was built, it had 12 anchors weighing at 45,000 pounds or 20,000 kilograms, and its full weight was about 25,000 tons. It's got two decks that house a maximum of 100 people. The Ocean Ranger was kept on the surface with two 122-meter or 400-feet long pontoons that rested 24 meters or 79 feet below the surface. The pontoons had 16 tanks that stored ballast water, fuel oil, and drill water. There were eight watertight vertical columns attached to the pontoon that connects to the hull. The four outer columns contained chain lockers to store the anchor chains. Leading to the chain lockers were deck openings from the upper deck for ease of access. As you can imagine, this rig was massive. Moving the rig was two times 3,500 horsepower DC electric motors providing propulsion to two steerable nozzles backed up by 7,000 horsepower. And if you're still with me, all the numbers I just mentioned translate to three things. It's big, strong, and fast. 
The 35-story-high, $50 million structure had a six-bed hospital, a movie theater, a restaurant, and a recreation room. One crew member described being aboard the Ocean Ranger as like being in a big hotel in the middle of the ocean. Once launched, the rig was certified and approved to operate under unrestricted ocean operations. This means that the Ocean Ranger was built to last any type of water conditions, including 100 knot winds or 190 kilometers per hour, and withstand 110 feet or 34 meter waves, and can drill as deep as 25,000 feet or 7,600 meters. According to Odico at that time, the Ocean Ranger was the largest and state-of-the-art semi-submersible oil rig in the world. The rig was then leased out to Mobile Oil for 93000 per day. For three years, the Ocean Ranger explored the coast of Alaska for oil in 1976 and traveled 22,500 kilometers or a little under 14,000 miles to Ireland and eventually reaching the Grand Banks of Newfoundland in November 1980. The island of Newfoundland is on the eastern side of Canada, considered a part of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. The island is the 16th largest in the world and is rich in history dating back to as early as Paleo-Eskimo inhabitants called the Dorset culture. Several expeditions by European settlers followed, including the Icelandic Viking Leif Erikson in 1100 and Genoese navigator Giovanni Caboto or John Cabot in 1497. The island is 108,860 kilometers squared or 42,030 square miles and is influenced by English, Irish, Scottish, French, and the First Nations indigenous peoples of the Mi'kmaq. St. John's is Newfoundland's most populous metropolitan area with over 12 suburbs located in the most eastern part of the island. St. John's is also the oldest city in Canada. Because of its location, Newfoundland's economy is mainly based on its natural resources. This includes fishing and underwater petroleum. Further off the southeast coast is a set of naturally occurring raised underwater plateaus called the Grand Banks. The Grand Banks is one of the world's most popular and bountiful fishing areas. The shallow water and warm Gulf Stream makes the Grand Banks an ideal place for marine plants and animals. Since the 1960s, the demand for oil has led companies to the Grand Banks of Newfoundland. Exploration of the area near the Grand Banks resulted in the discovery of Hibernia, an oil field approximately 315 kilometers or 196 miles east-southeast of St. John's. The Hibernia oil field is the world's largest oil platform and produces millions of barrels of oil in any given year. Multiple oil companies own the rights to explore and drill specific wells from the Hibernia oil field with the use of mobile offshore drilling units or modus. And to boost the local economy further, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador insisted that rigs which operate in the Grand Banks hire skilled domestic workers. One of these mobile offshore drilling units exploring and drilling oil in the Hibernia field was the Ocean Ranger. They said that the winter of 1982 was something to behold. Meteorologists even called this the 10 to 12 year storm, that type of winter storms coming their way only occurring every 10 to 12 years. In the early days of February, at least two feet of snow was dumped in the Newfoundland area 
and made its way to the east. To the south, storms from the Gulf of Mexico wrecked its way towards the north until it reached Newfoundland and Labrador. The inclement weather was categorized as Sea Storm 8, where waves were about 50 meters or 50 feet in height with inconsistent intervals and steep slopes. Along with the high and short waves came 70-knot gale-force winds. Somewhere in the Hibernia oil field, above well J-34, was the Ocean Ranger. The rig was about 175 miles away from the city of St. John's, where it has been stationed for at least a year and a half. At that time, there were 84 crew members on board, led by the barge master. Most of the crew were employed by Odico Drilling, while the rest were contracted from several agencies. On February 6, 1982, the wind gusts from the storm caused the rig to list on its side. The barge master ordered the radio control operator to contact the Coast Guard. Thankfully, the rig was able to withstand the list and continued to operate through the storm. Days later, some of the crew members of the Ocean Ranger were transported back to the mainland for a shift change. There were two other rigs located near the Ocean Ranger, Sedco 76 and Zapata Ugland. The rigs are in constant communication with one another, reporting any issues that each or all of them may have or use each other's crews and equipment if any assistance were needed. By Valentine's Day, the winds picked up to 100 miles per hour and battered everything in its way. The storm made its way from the south of Newfoundland and turns to the Grand Banks. The Ocean Ranger pulled its drill bit off the seafloor, but did not ultimately bring it up closer to the platform. Around 7 p.m. local time, Sedco 76 reported a rogue wave that hit their rig, causing some damage on the platform and the loss of a life raft. Not long after, the Ocean Ranger reported the same experience to the shore base in St. John's. A colossal wave about 20 meters or 65 feet high crashed over the rig and destroyed the porthole in the ballast room. The porthole was wide open to the storm and seas, which caused waters to rush in and short-circuited the panels. Even with the rig's ability to withstand the waves and high winds, the flood caused the platform to list on its side. Ocean Ranger contacted other rigs, including Sedco 76, and reported that because of the short circuit, the valve inside the ballast control room was opening and closing by itself. As a temporary solution, the crew took rods, which were a part of the ballast control system, inserted it in the valve to close and provide stability to the rig since seawater started to flood. Little do they know, this action caused the exact opposite. All the rigs in the area never ceased communication through radio. The crew of the Ocean Ranger was heard over the air, seemingly calm and unalarmed with the current weather outside. At 10 in the evening, the Ocean Ranger reported a successful cleanup of broken glass and water, most likely from the porthole that was damaged. For several hours, all rigs were on high alert but maintained business as usual with normal radio traffic in between. In the meantime, the waves reached over 50 feet tall and the winds were measured at 100 knots. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning of the following day when a drilling foreman radioed the mobile shore office in St. John's. 
We're listing badly and we need to get the people off the rig and that's about it. The Ocean Ranger was listing at 8 to 10 degrees on its port side. The foreman requested that their supply vessel, MVC Fourth Highlander, to head over near the Ocean Ranger to assist. In a matter of nine minutes, an emergency telex was sent to the Coast Guard, reading, We are experiencing a severe list unable to correct the problem. We are in the middle of a severe storm at that time, 12 degrees. Request assistance ASAP. The mobile offshore office received another radio from the same foreman saying that they may not be able to hold the rig. The foreman also informed the office that if they do not send any rescue helicopters soon, the crew will be doomed. About one minute later, the foreman, though his voice was clearly agitated, calmly asked the office to send out a mayday for the rig. The distress signal was sent immediately. It was 1.14 in the morning when the foreman sent this chilling message from the Ocean Ranger. There will be no further radio communications from Ocean Ranger. We are going to lifeboat stations. That message was the final time that anyone would hear from anybody on the rig. By the time rescuers, both at sea and in the air, arrived near the Ocean Ranger's location, it was way too late. The storm had prevented the rescuers to deploy safely. Two hours later, the location signal light emitted by the largest and strongest oil rig in the world stopped blinking. The state-of-the-art and fast Ocean Ranger sank slowly in the cold, dark dawn of February 15, 1982. All 84 crew members perished. 56 were from Newfoundland, 15 from the United States, 5 from Alberta, 4 from Ontario, 3 from Nova Scotia, and 1 from Montreal. On land, Lloyd Majors woke up on the morning of February 15th learning about the capsizing of the Ocean Ranger. He felt a slight chill up his spine. He was just on the Ranger four days ago for a shift change. Lloyd received a call from the office asking him to come down to St. John's inside a building by the waterfront. He was given the task of identifying the bodies of his colleagues. Even after spending his days as a medic, this was more personal and at times became too overwhelmed that he had to step back and get some rest at a nearby hotel. But as the days rolled by, he was asked to return again to the makeshift morgue to identify more. Later, he will be asked to testify about his experience on the rig. Lloyd will give up his time on the rig and join the Canadian Coast Guard soon. Years later, he donated the photos he took while on the rig to the room's provincial archives in St. John's. Many of these photos were the last ones taken of the crew before the tragedy. Aboard Sedco 76 was Owen Myers, a weather forecaster. When he was asked about what happened, he remembers, We did not have anything. We didn't have all the survival suits like they have now. We had nothing, you know. I mean, you were just going to go out in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, the seawater temperature was negative 1.2 degrees Celsius, I think. There was evidence that only a handful of the crew members were either able to jump off the platform 
or was thrown off by the listing rig to the cold sea waters. There were conflicting reports about what time the search and rescuers reached the Ocean Ranger's location. Some say the helicopters got there at 2.30 in the morning, while others say at 4. But what was clear was that several smaller boats in the area tried to help out. Between February 15th to the 20th, search teams were only able to recover 22 bodies, two lifeboats, and six life rafts from the massive rig. Everything sank down the bottom of the Atlantic. It was determined from the autopsies that the 22 bodies suffered hypothermia and drowned. The other 62 were never found. The families of the 84 crew members were obviously devastated. The close-knit communities in the St. John's metropolitan area were never the same. With many bodies remaining unrecovered, the heartache remains. Orico and its partners paid out reparations to the families individually, which totaled to $20 million. The company was then bought out by another corporation in 1993. A royal commission was tasked to investigate this tragedy. The U.S. Coast Guard also initiated a subsequent inquiry. But because the Ocean Ranger was registered in the United States, other agencies that assisted in the inquiry included the National Transportation and Safety Board. The purpose of the investigation by the Royal Commission was to answer three questions. One, why did the Ocean Ranger capsize and sink? Two, why was none of the crew saved? And three, how can other similar disasters be avoided? The timeline of the accident that led to the capsizing was as follows. The 50-foot wave crashed over the rig and shattered a porthole in the ballast control room. This porthole allowed water to enter the room, which was supposed to be maintained dry at all times. The ballast control malfunctioned or appeared to malfunction and short-circuit. The crew thought that manually opening the valve would stabilize the malfunctioning ballast and this caused the rig to list or tilt forward. The listing flooded the chain lockers in the front corner support columns that list even further, and as the flood got worse and worse, the ballast pumps were not able to function correctly and caused the rig to capsize eventually. In both reports, it was concluded that the cause of the accident was not due to one specific reason, but a cascade of problems, all of which could mostly have been prevented. Besides the severe weather conditions, the inquiry found problems in the rig's design flaws, mechanical issues, and human error, which was the result of improper training. The design flaws and mechanical issues included the inability of the ballast control room to easily short-circuit, and the chain lockers were not watertight and quickly succumbed to flooding. This also included all portholes, which were made of thin glass and shattered way too easily. The rig also lacked proper safety protocol and equipment. From the account of Owen Myers of SEDCO 76, there were no survival suits available for any crew members and the lifeboats were found to be ill-equipped to endure severe weather. Although the supply vessel MVC Worth Highlander was readily available, there was no protocol on its distance to the rig. At the time of the Ocean Ranger's request to deploy the vessel, the Seaforth Highlander was 8 miles away and did not make it in time to help with the distress call. 
but what became evidently hazardous were human errors. The two-year inquiry concluded that there was a noticeable lack of approved and formal training for many of the jobs on the rig. Mostly, new hires learned on the job and on the fly. Another example is the lack of standard and required training for the crew members assigned inside the ballast control room. If you recall, the ballast control room became a critical area in the rig's capsizing. The commission reported that had the crew left the valve alone and shut off the power in some of the areas of the ballast control panel, the rig would have never listed. The crew was not adequately trained to use the life-saving equipment on board. Of course, the blame does not end there. Regulatory agencies and companies were also criticized. At that time, there were three government bodies supposedly managing the offshore drilling industry. The Canadian federal government was represented by COGLA, or Canada Oil and Gas Lands Administration, the provincial government through the NLPD, or Newfoundland Labrador Petroleum Directorate, and the United States Coast Guard. One finding was that the rescue helicopters were ill-equipped to operate in severe weather conditions and that each one on hand was at least 20 years old. These helicopters did not have long-range distance fuel tanks that made it impossible to reach certain distances for search and rescue. At that time, both COGLA and NLPD thought that Odico, the rig's owner, followed United States Coast Guard regulations, which included proper safety training and structural stability. While the U.S. Coast Guard did not verify compliance of the rig itself. Basically, not one of these three agencies checked on one another. There was also a territorial standoff between COGLA and NLPD for ownership of the offshore drilling industry that made following any regulation quite confusing and hastily enforced. The committee in the end listed 136 recommendations. In July 1985, the Canadian government acted on 90 of the 136 immediately. One of the major changes was to create a single agency to oversee the offshore drilling industry. Instead of three governing bodies, the Canada, Newfoundland, and Labrador Offshore Petroleum Board, or C-NLOPB, was created to implement and execute strict regulations for offshore drilling units. The provisions included proper structural design appropriate for North American and Atlantic waters and an elevated ballast control room. The ballast control systems were made to be less complicated and easier to manage. Life vests and boats were increased in number to match the number of personnel on board. Most importantly, safety and industry standardized training for all jobs on the rigs were required before even stepping on one. Each crew member will have to prove that he or she went through the regulated training without exceptions. Further research into EER or escape evacuation and rescue followed and advanced technology to improve the industry to avoid any more tragedies. Over a year after the loss of lives on the Ocean Ranger, a decision was made to move the rig to deeper waters. Since the Grand Banks was considered shallow waters, it was deemed as safety hazards for other rigs in the area that may accidentally come near the sunken rig. But, 
While it was being moved to a new location, a sudden explosion occurred and killed two divers on duty. While the investigation of the explosion was happening, another diver was killed unexpectedly. On the grounds of Newfoundland's Confederation Building sits a memorial dedicated to the crew of the Ocean Ranger. Every year, on the anniversary of the tragedy, students, families, and the community near Gonzaga High School in St. John's, Newfoundland, hold an hour-long mass to remember the victims. Five of the victims were graduates of the school. Many of the sons and daughters of those who died are now well in their adult lives, but the loss will never leave their hearts. During the ceremony, a former crew member of the Ocean Ranger laid a wreath at the foot of the altar. Two students lit up one candle for each name. During the Mass, while candles were being lit, reading the names of all 84 crew members was Lloyd Major. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. Let us know what you think of this episode. Also, if you want to suggest topics, send us a note at untimelypodcast at gmail.com. I know that there are thousands of podcasts out there, and I thank you sincerely for choosing Untimely. Connect with us on Twitter at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.